That touches a topic that, um, that I think that I want to plant in your, your minds, and some of you have already I've talked to about this. Um, we, as, as the Papua New Guinean church, and I include myself here, I've spent one-fourth of my life here. I'm a resident, permanent resident. Uh, I love PNG. I have grandkids on the other side, but I spend more time here than I do with them. We, we as a church, need to realize that we are a church that should be standing on its own two feet. We should be. And the, I, 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 it, a missionary helped me see this. Sorry, the light is shining in my glasses and I can't see you. A missionary in, from Mexico who was Bubublungen, not Papablungen, were missionaries, and then um, he was. He said to me when I was in the States last telling him this very thing about the maturity level, and I had seen it in India, where the Indian churches were writing their own books. For example, the Indian church, Baptists in India, have written doctrinal books. I actually have one in my library, and have used it in a teaching a course. Church written by an Indian Baptist pastor, educated, but he wrote it. It's very doctrinal. It's very true. No doctrines in there are different than any doctrines I've read written by Americans or British or Australians or anybody from any other country. But you know what is included in those Indian, in his writing? India, their context, the way they think. So the doctrines are the same, but there are some applications in the book that just come screaming through that might not make sense to an American or to a Papua New Guinean, but to an Indian, they're like, it's there. Same doctrine, but in the application. And I mentioned that to this missionary, and he said, brother, we, he said, my dad, our family has been trying to tell the Mexican church that for, for decades. Guys, you're smart enough. Write your own books. How much better when you see the name of a person from your nation on the book, and it is a well-written book, or a well, it doesn't have to be a long one, but it's well-written, and you read it, and you get help, and you share it with your friends, and you say, Hey, this little man in Hussite. You say, hey, Mon Garoka, or One Club, Mon Central, or Rigo, or 1M. And you're like, what? Yeah, we can do that. Now, I'm going to be honest. Not can do that. I can't. I'm horrible at writing. I hate to write. I'm sitting on top of a really long paper I have to write to finish something. I don't want to do it. It's, I just I don't like to write. It's not my gift. I can talk. Because mouse with me, I just turn, just runs. <laughs> But my too fast, and I can't type that. I can't type as fast enough to get it get it on there. But we can write, and where we, we begin, this is where Brother Eric comes in. Where we begin to learn to write is writing short articles. He's asking you to write. He's not asking you to write a fifty-page thesis on something. No, no, no. Write the article. Start with your sermon, the thing that you are that you're spending your time in. I will say this. For him, if you write it and he doesn't publish it, it may just mean you're, it, it wasn't helpful or maybe well, spellings you bug it up or one M. Don't be ashamed. Just, but write. Just write. Because I'm excited. When we do this, when he, Brother Eric does this, I should say, when he does this in email format, in PDF format, it can be 100 pages long and it costs no more than it does if it's two pages long. You can keep adding to it. Now, when you try to print it, price by go on top. But we're not using that. We're using WhatsApp. I get mine, mine on WhatsApp and, and Facebook Messenger. And so Brother Eric puts it all together, puts it in PDF form, and then sends it out. And I don't know. How, do you know how many people uh, receive it directly? No idea. Raise your hand if you have seen it before today. Please, I want Brother Eric to see this because it's going out blind. Before today... Brother Eric, in this crowd, this is how many people have seen it. So, brother, you don't you don't know how far it's going. I have read very helpful things in there, and I know one of the authors that he's talking about is an American author. Writes is a very good writer, and ladies, I'll tell you, it's a lady. She's not a preacher, but she has a very good insight to the scriptures and to human nature. And we actually use one of her books as a textbook in our relationships class. And so very good. When she writes, I, I read it. I'm like, I just want to see what insight she has. But that said, most of it is preachers and whatever, and I'm glad to hear that others are contributing. So contribute, contribute. Find out how you can get on that uh, WhatsApp. Will you send it through the PNG Independent Baptist? You send it through BBI Palm. Find out from Brother Eric how he sends it, 
and you'll have to get a little data on your phone. Get a little data on your phone, and then, but once you open it, it's there in your phone, and you can have it. Which leads me to another thing. We need, we need preachers to begin to write. Uh, our young guys, you young guys, I hope your generation sees a different level in, in how we are in Papua New Guinea. The missionaries that we stand on their shoulders, all the men that came before us, Brother Kendi, you sat at their feet. Those, those brothers before taught us how to evangelize, taught us how to, let's get in there, let's get the work done, let's get a, get a church going, let's get people together, let's be faithful, and all of that was very good. But now we're at a point with what do we do now? 1950s and 1960s were the American, the last great American evangelistic surge. In the 1950s and 1960s, Americans were open to you going to their house, sit on the veranda, story one time, drink tea, drink coffee, share the gospel, people getting saved. I come along, I'm coming along in the 70s and 80s. In the 70s and 80s, you could get the response, but it was slowing down. When I became pastor, year 2000, it went, Burr! Americans won't even let you in their house. You come close to the house, it's not that they think you're Jehovah's Witness, they just don't want you in their house, it's a fortress. Nobody sits on the veranda, unless you go to the lower income areas. And those people don't have air con, or they don't have so much heat, they sit out on the veranda, those people will still let you talk to them. But you go to the average American home, you cannot even get in the home. The only way you're ever gonna evangelize those people is at work or become their friend or find some way to get in. And we watched, I watched that change for us. What happened is everybody says, I'm saved. Everybody has, they've heard it. They think they've heard it. We know they haven't, but they think they've heard it. America had to re-strategize. Okay, how do we reach people? In PNG, we can still hit them in the markets. We can still go house to house. But what if that begins to change? Are we ready? Are we ready for that? We, do, do you want your children to be more educated than you are? Do you want that? With more education, Solomon wrote in, in Ecclesiastes, with much education is gonna come a change in their mindset. That means they're gonna expect more. And if you're, if you're preaching at a grade five level, and God bless you if that's as far as you can go, but you can only go so long with grade 12s. And the grade 12s will love you and they will respect you, but they're gonna need somebody who can up that. Now you grade five guy, you can up your, you don't need to up your grade level and get a new certificate. You just up your grade in preaching. You just study, you learn, you, you take it higher because your holiness and your godliness and your life is gonna impact a lot, but so is your study of the word. And you're gonna help yourself. We've been talking about reading the word. I appreciate what brother Eric is doing with the IFB Tribune because in that are, are articles written by our own pastors, written by our own missionaries, written by some of them, written by people who've done things or giving histories of people that done it. And you read that always encourages my heart. And I know it would encourage yours. And so let me encourage you to read this. Sign up with Brother Eric on one of the WhatsApp groups and buy the data and get, the, get, it, get it downloaded. It's for your help. Preacher Imran from Morguina was just telling me something, and I, I, want, I think I want to see this uh, publicly right now. How many of you know of fellowships, or, or, yeah, let's just say fellowships that are already started that need preachers? Would you raise your hand? I just want everybody to see how many places there are. You know a place that does not have a pastor or a preacher. Would you raise your hand? Up and down, you said it. Put it up, put it up. I want everybody to look around and see how many places there are where there's already a fellowship and there's no preacher. Just this few. I thought there would be a lot more. So every place you know, they've got preachers. Well, praise the Lord for that, because there are a lot of places that I know that don't have that. And it's, and it's up to us to continue to train, which is why BBI Palm is here, is to train men to have them ready in the replacement phase for the pastors who are here. But brother, if we're going to grow the church by evangelism, by planting churches. There have to be men who know how to do it. And, and to know how to do it, they're gonna have to grow up underneath a pastor who knows how to do it and shows them how to do it. We don't just, this guy says, oh, God called me to do this, and then we just put him in the rubber gun and shoot him over there. No, no, we, we wanna be prepared for it. We wanna, we wanna engage and prepare to put him in a right place where there's people that are, that are responsive, where the door is open. 
and all that tough, all that stuff takes. Think ahead. Think ahead. Those opportunities, are, and it's not just opportunities for us to get our name on. Oh, we started four more churches in the last five years. No, praise God, we had the opportunity to reach this place, and we had the opportunity to reach this place. And so, I, I want to encourage all of you that that be praying so that the Papua New Guinea church will grow itself. The missionaries are not coming. And I believe it's of God. Because we're mature. We are a mature church. And we can act like it. We may not have all the funding. We may not have the the things that the West has. But God didn't intend us to have that. God has has different things that we can do that other people cannot do. And so I, I want you to embrace the idea. We can do this. We can do this because God put us here. And God will make it happen. All right, enough of the public service announcement. I believe a lot of you feel the same, same way, and I just want you to know that God is there. All right, we've been, we were talking about this, and you, you, you all came in, you paid the 100 Kina gate fee, and so you learned a brand new word, hermeneutics, um, the principles, the principles of, our, of what we study and the methods of what we study. So we're just talking about the principles. Not thunder, it's okay. The guys are moving chairs. Oh, good, you think it's an earthquake. I was in here for an earthquake once, by the way. <laughs> Where was Paul? <laughs> Those TVs on both sides were going. And Pastor Matt's just up here preaching. He doesn't feel it because he's moving. And everybody in the chairs is like, I don't know, when did we cut up the ship yet? Anyway, interpretation is not application. What is the application? If you're preaching a, a message, what, is the, what do we mean when we talk about the application? What's the root word of application? How we, how we apply it. How do you apply it? How do you apply the sermon to your life? Too many times, that's how we build our messages, and that's the last step, because we want the text to say what it says, but we do want to get to that application. But what this text means is not how you apply it. That's, that's a later step. I'm actually going to put that on the screen, show you how it goes. Interpretation, understanding the text, is not how you would apply it. Go back to the prodigal son. The prodigal, uh, not the prodigal son, the, uh, the good Samaritan. You have the good Samaritan. And you, you know the story, and the, the man is, is on, the, uh, on the Jericho Jerusalem road. The thieves find him, rob him, beat him, kill him, leave him for dead. Priest comes by, ignores him. Levite comes by and ignores him. And then a Samaritan comes by and gets him and, the, and, and heals him, or doesn't heal him. He takes care of him, drops him off at the, at the inn, and pays for his stay and whatever, and it's all good. That, the interpretation is, it's a parable. There's the story, we had the story. The application is, how does that apply to you? How does that apply to you? And believe it or not, there's more than one application because you got several characters in the story. First of all, you, we naturally think, are you the Samaritan? Would you do that for somebody? And then you think about, well, the Jews didn't even like Samaritans. So would he have done this for this guy? If he was, you know, would we do it for certain people? Oh, I would do it for a fellow central, but this guy is a Highlands and he spit buoy on my car and no, not gonna, I mean, we're gonna be different about that. Uh, it, 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 or, or we have to evaluate, am I a Levite or a priest? If this guy's on the side of the road, I am trouble blame yeah, I mean, up, yeah. What do you believe? Village, hey we? like are we that you know sometimes we would even have to ask the application are you the guy is have you given your life over to such sin that sin has just beaten you up and trashed your life and left you on the side of the road you're going to find religion can't help you and joining a church can't help you but what can help you is someone who would care for you and love you enough like jesus because the samaritan good samaritan actually pictures jesus comes along. I mean, you have four different applications just by looking at the four characters in the story. So the application is, how do you make this message mean something to us? But you don't start there. You start with what the text says and what, what, what's there. Not looking for hidden meanings. Oh, and behind him, Rodi, Golom, Jerusalem, Jericho, he's on top of Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means he was on the road, bro. And walk about the road. That's all it means. It's a parable. 
This, this is something that will help you with Old and New Testament preaching. There is a big fault in Papua New Guinea preaching, and that is a very large gap between the amount of sermons that are preached on the New Testament and the amount that are preached on the Old Testament. Just yourself, don't raise your hand. When was the last time you preached a message from the Old Testament besides Christmas, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given? Have you ever taught your people through any book in the Old Testament or any theme from the Old Testament? Romans 15, 4 says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The Old Testament is huge. There is a distinction, a difference between Israel and the church. There is a distinction between the Old and New Covenant. I, w- I would say between the Old and New Testament, but then you would think the division in your Bible between Malachi and Matthew. No, no, this is the Old Covenant, the law. This is the New Covenant, grace, salvation by grace through faith. There are big differences here. And sometimes I hear preachers crossing lines because they didn't, just didn't study exactly how the, what the passage said, and they wind up with the wrong, wrong interpretation, which is going to read the wrong application. So you find Israel and the church in the, in the Bible aren't the same. Doctrinally, there's, there are a lot of Christians in the world, good, godly, Bible-believing, blood-bought, headed-for-heaven Christians who think that is, God is done with Israel and the church replaces Israel. And they have Bible verses for it. I totally disagree. I think the scripture says that Israel and the church are distinct and God's not done with Israel. And I believe most Papua New Guineans believe that. But the idea is understanding what are the differences and why is the church not the continuation of Israel? Why is it a separate thing that God had in his mind? And that's for a different lesson. But it's just the idea. There's a distinction between Israel and the church. There's a distinction between the Old and New Covenant. Understanding the context. We keep using the word context. I remember uh, teaching in in Lay uh, 2017, I think. Pastor Ben and I, Pastor Kevin, I think we were all there. And uh, I asked Pastor Ben the morning after one of the sessions, I said, how are the guys getting my sessions? And he said, missionary. (laughs) He said, all of the guys asked me last night, what does the missionary mean when he says context? I don't understand the word context. And remember you said that to me, Ben? And I was like, whoa. And the next morning I had to back up and talk about what context is. Somebody help me with context. We talk about the Bible, the context of a verse. What are we looking at? What is its context? Okay, but how do we find that? The verses around it, which we said earlier. It can be the verse before. Find the sentence. Find the paragraph. Not Remember, in your study, get rid of the verse numbers in your mind. You have to just kind of set those aside. They're, they're markers to help you identify where it is. They, they are, but the purpose, the sentence flows without numbers in between. And so read it that way and grasp that and pull that because it's the full context. Let me give you some verses out of context to tell you the will of God for your life. Judas went out and hanged himself. Go and do thou likewise. And that that thou doest, do quickly. I just gave you three Bible verses. Wait a minute, maybe if I go, Judas went out and hanged himself. Amen. I mean, if you, maybe if we shout and we say verses out of context, that makes them right. It doesn't. It doesn't. So we want to say the verses in their context. You don't want to pull them out of their context. Be careful when we do that. So keep the verses in their context. Pray. Read. And can I suggest this? This is something that, that I struggle with, reading out loud by myself. I don't, I don't pray out loud very often. It's not that I'm ashamed that people hear me. I just don't like, to, I don't like the sound of my voice when I'm alone. I feel like I'm long, long. You find me in my office. I, I found this to be true when I lived in Kodidanga because we just had the, had just had the what do you mean? Copper roof, no ceiling, just copper roof. Time blow rain, I would pray out loud. I would do it. When I was alone, I found out that I did, because I had to think, Paul, I had to think while I was doing it. But then I realized if somebody, I knew somebody could hear me, I wouldn't do that. 
that it's raining and I can't think. And so I'm praying, God, thank you so much for this morning. And I'm praying really loud. And the rain's just beating on the house. And I, it's, but it's, but I, I realized if I just could get over my fear of hearing my own voice and read the scriptures out loud, it's helpful. Some of us learn better by hearing than we do by seeing. Some of us can look at the verse and read it in our mind and you hear it well. But when you read it out loud to yourself, it's coming in your eye and it's coming in your ear at the same time. And maybe to read the text, when I say read the text over and over, read it, read it out loud. Pray about it, read it, and then get the fish. Look at it, observe it. This is um, to understand just the context. You're not trying to do the sermon yet. I just want to know what this passage says. And then you ask some questions. And here are some basic questions to ask. Who wrote this? Now, some of them are easy. If you find something in the book of Matthew, are you ready? This is a difficult question. BBI Palm, we're known for the really hard test. If you find something in the book of Matthew, who wrote it? Thank you, Matthew. Some of you are like, oh, James? <laughs> no, Matthew. And if you find it in Mark, who wrote it? Okay, there you go. You got the idea. Who wrote it? But there's another thing you would have to ask about that is who said it? Because does that make a difference? Yes. Does Satan ever speak in the Bible? Absolutely. You need to discern when Satan is speaking and when somebody else is speaking. Because some people say the Bible has no lies in it. Did you know the Bible is full of lies? It's God quoting people lying. So be careful when you say, there's no lies in the Bible. And then, then some, some smart aleck is going to tell you, yes, there are. And he'll name three or four, and you're like, oh, well, you know, that, that's not what I mean. Huh? God records lies so you can figure out the truth from darkness. Here's some of the people that wrote. Paul wrote. Paul did not write like John. John didn't write like Luke. Moses didn't write like Ezra. And believe me, none of those guys could write like Isaiah. Each of them, in their context, in their time, who wrote, let me ask you of these three guys right here at the top, Paul, John, and Luke, who wrote the most of the New Testament? Okay, if we count the number of books, 13 or <coughs> 14, it's Paul. But that's when you count books. But Paul was a, was a deep, short writer, with the exception of Romans and <coughs> Hebrews. He was, a short, he was a short book writer, right? I just finished uh, translating uh, 1 Thessalonians, and it's 1% of the New Testament. Five chapters, but it's only 1%. It's just really short. But the actual answer is Luke. How many books did Luke write? Two. But here's how you can prove it. Look, just look at the page numbers in there. Start in Luke chapter 1. Take the page number. Go to the last chapter of Luke. See what that page number is. Count that up. What's the other book that he wrote? Acts. Go to Acts, the first page. Go to the last page and see how many pages that is. Then see how many pages Paul wrote. And then you'll be surprised how much John wrote. John wrote a lot. John wrote a lot. These are the three main authors of the New Testament. But you'll find page for page, which means the most words, Luke wrote more, even though it's just two books. But it, that, that's trivia. That's nothing that's going to help your church. Like, oh, people are like, oh, no, they're all repenting and coming down front. And you're leading people to Christ because they all found out Luke did that or they found that Paul wrote Hebrews. They would just be like, okay, I'm being funny about that. Pastor Matt and I disagree. The author of Hebrews, it's not, his name is not in there. You're like, no, no, my Bible says the epistle of the apostle Paul to the Hebrews. That's not in, that's not in the original. That's, nobody knows. Nowhere in the text does it say Paul wrote Hebrews. I see evidences there. He sees other evidences there. It is a good-natured, fun time that we have, and I have several pastor friends, and we do the same thing about it. And I'm just like, that's right. One day you're going to find Paul's Schofield reference Bible in a cave <laughs> signed by, this is my Schofield Bible, Apostle Paul of Tarsus, and it's going to have Hebrews, and he's going to circle it, and he's going to put an arrow, and he's going to go, I wrote this. All kidding aside, this, these, these are main authors. Now, what was Paul's... And this, this does, this is, it needs to be in your thinking, preachers. What was Paul before his conversion? 
He was a Pharisee, yeah. He had a job as a tent maker, but that didn't matter. Pharisees were a religious group, an organization. It's like you, if I can do it this way, you're a Baptist, but you might be a carpenter or a doctor or a lawyer. You have a job, but your identity is this. Paul was a Jew, but he was a Jew of a very small organization of people, maybe five or 6,000. They were brilliant. They, they had massive amounts of what we call the Old Testament memorized. They had their own laws that they added on top of it so that they didn't, they, we call them circles around the law, fences around the law, so they wouldn't even get close to breaking the law. All of that is in his mind before the day he meets Jesus. His brain is full of Bible. What was this guy? He was a fisherman. Don't you know he was educated? <laughs> no. He and his brother, they're second gen at least second-generation fishermen with their dad Zebedee and their partners Andrew and Peter. Now, I'm not saying John is stupid or long-long. It's just the idea is this guy grew up with massive amounts of Scripture in his brain. This guy grew up as a fisherman. But who's the one that Jesus loved? That key, him being the one that Jesus loved, makes a whole lot of difference in every book he wrote, including Revelation. Now, what about this guy? The Apostle Luke. No, he's not one of the 12. He's a historian. Professionally, what was he? Paul mentions it, I think, in Colossians. What was he professionally? He was a physician, right. He's a, he's a doctor. Now, get this, first century doctor, I doubt you want him working on you. You might want Luke because he was a godly man, but this is not, this is not you going to your doctor at, at, at your clinic. He's not even a doctor boy in the most remote village. This guy is very rudimentary with that. But he was said by, by some secular people to be one of the greatest historians who ever lived. By far, his history accounts surpass every one who ever wrote any history in the world because they've been translated into how many different languages, how many people in the world are familiar with Luke and his history. And every bit of his histories in the book of Acts, when it comes to the seafaring journeys, have been checked out, and they're perfect. They're perfect. The only way you could know that is either talk to those sailors, or you, you took that trip yourself, and you're making notes as you go. And it's Luke that gives us the angel visiting John, or Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. How, would he, how did he find out what Mary said to the angel? He said, God gave it to him. I think God's a lot more, a lot more slick than you think. How did, how did Luke find out what Mary said? Go ask her. He asked her. He went and met with those people, and you read the Gospel of Luke. You've got, Luke is the one that writes about the two men walking to Emmaus, and Jesus meets them. How did he get that? How did he find out what happened? He asked them. This guy is a historian. His writings are different than either of those. He hardly ever writes any narrative. He is a genius. He's writing theology. He's writing doctrine. This guy, man, this guy can tell a story. And this guy right here can give you the best details of a story. And we're not even talking about the Old Testament. That makes a difference in what you're reading. Does it, does it make it different, more spiritual, less spiritual? Just understand their perspective. Who wrote the passage? We could be there all day. Who did he write it to? Did he write it to the Jews? Did he write it to the Gentiles? Did he write it to the church, or did he write it to a mixed group? It makes a difference. Because if you're looking at something that he wrote to the Jews, and it's about punishment and judgment and whatever, and you stand up in front of your church and said, and God said he's going to burn us and send us to Babylon and... No, he didn't say he's going to do that at all. You, you jumped to an application and pulled verses that weren't yours, and it makes a difference. When did they live? We talked about that earlier. What period of time? Did they live during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or uh, Joshua? Did they live under David and Solomon or Saul? Did they learn dur live during the time of the captivity or in the return? You see what that is? Those five things that I put right there, that is the history periods of the Old Testament. And they're very different. They're very different. And know this about the Old Testament. This is why you have to learn and study. The Old Testament is not in chronological order. What do I mean when I say chronological? Order of time. Order of time. 
It's not in the order of time. Genesis is, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel are. But after you get to the kings, look out, baby. She goes back and forth. Because when we get to Job, when did Job take place? During Genesis. You pull it all the way back to Genesis 12 to 15. That's when Job took place. Wait a minute, it's way over here. Shouldn't we like split Genesis and drop Job in there? And then when you look at Malachi, he is exactly where he should be. But the events in Malachi come back to some of the events in Ezra and Nehemiah. And wait a minute, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's before Psalms. That had to, you have to understand the time, the time that they're written. And so there's no inaccuracy in Scripture. But if you think that Ezra and Nehemiah took place and then many, many years later Daniel took place, you need to realize that Ezra and Nehemiah are after Daniel, after Ezekiel. These things are in there. It's just we have to understand it. Take the time. You're like, oh, Papa John, I, how am I ever going to know all this stuff? I didn't learn it in one day or one week or one year. In fact, when I finished my five years of Bible school, Oh, I keep saying that. I went to Bible school for five years. Yeah, it was a two-year program. It took me five years to finish it. I'm slow, boys. I'm very slow. But those things that I had to learn after when I had to teach and I had to preach, that's when you really learn it. You BBI Palm students, I love you to death, but you're really going to learn when you have to teach somebody else. That's when you learn. The stuff you sit in class and it's the tipper truck comes in and we pull out the fire hose and we go and shoot that stuff into your brain, that's, that's just the start. The real stuff is when you study to give it to somebody else. You want to ask, when did they live? In the New Testament, we're talking about, did they live in the time of Christ or the time of the apostles? Why is that different? Strange thing about the time of Christ, until the resurrection of Christ, we are under the old covenant. The law is not done away until Jesus raises from the dead. That's why he heals the leper and then tells him to go make an offering according to what Moses said for his cleansing. He's still under the law. The Old Testament law is still in force in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John until you come up to Easter. So you come up to the resurrection, that's still under the Old Testament. Time of the apostles, it's going to stretch from the, from the very beginning in Acts one and two, when the church is born, all the way to the, uh, the last apostle being John, Revelation being written close to 90, maybe 95 A.D., it makes a difference. And then you ask what's happening at that time. Were they in exile in Babylon and Persia? Or were they a powerful kingdom? Was there a time of revival? Was it a time like in the book of Judges where they were in gross idolatry and immorality? Those are questions you, you should ask. You would ask, <clears throat> what were the people doing and how were they living? Was there civil war? Israel was very good at that, by the way. Israel was great at fighting themselves. Civil war, were they in captivity to another nation, like the Romans or the Egyptians? Was it a time of prosperity? Was it a time that they were, they, as Deuteronomy says, they were the head? Or was it a time that they were the tail, oppressed by their enemies? When you read each passage, you just need to have that framework. This would be why it's good for you to invest in study materials. Because some of that stuff helps you. Ask questions. Are there references in the passage you're reading to another Bible book? And I'm, I'm not going to do that, but if you were to look up these references in Hebrews, and th literally hundreds and maybe a thousand more in the New Testament, they're referring to things in the Old Testament. And you need to go back and see what it was saying in the Old Testament. All of those have in common one thing. Psalm 110, verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He keeps repeating that. If you find it repeated that many times in a book, it must mean something. And I don't mean a hidden meaning. He just keeps referring to him. And so these are things that you need to take time to look at. You need to analyze it. And it takes time. But it will, oh, the fruit that it will bear as you see it. Hey, listen, some texts you approach, there's not a lot there. What you see is what you get. But there are some of them you get in there. Uh, it, you're, you should, now you'll hear about it tomorrow, you should say to yourself, you know, there's too much to preach here in one sermon. I need to figure out how I can break this. Does it break naturally into two? 
or three sermons, and I, I, will, I will believe this, some of you have never thought that far ahead in your preaching. I didn't used to. But it doesn't hurt to think two or three messages ahead. Because if you see it and it's there, don't force it to happen. Let it be one message and two messages so that you, your people grasp the text and grasp it well. You have to answer statements like this. Forget the idea of the big word exegetical. Answer the question, what did it mean then? Theologically, what, what eternal truth do you see in this, in this scripture here? In other words, as you're seeing it, look at this. Wow, this is, this is uh, let's use the story for the backside of John 3.16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. The backstory is Numbers chapter 21. When you go back and read Numbers 21, the people complained, God heard it, God sent what to bite the people? Small dogs. Snakes, not small dogs. He sent snakes to bite them. Right, he didn't say make a small dog and put it on a, on a pole. So God tells Moses, the people come to Moses and they repent. We're sorry we did that. Please pray to, uh, pray to the Lord for us that he'll deliver us from the snakes. And what does the Lord do? He tells Moses, you make a serpent out of brass, put it on a pole, and tell anyone if they'll come and kiss it and rub it, sig blow by pinis. Oh, he didn't. He said what? Look and live. Now, I hope you already would understand what the application is there. That it, to look, it, look, snake bite is real to us here, okay? Central, it's here, right, real to us here on the property. <laughs> we got black poplins and, and taipans all the time running across the property here. Snake bite is really real to us here. Nobody at, on Capital City's property bitten by a taipan is going to say, uh, can somebody go get the stick with the brass snake on it? I need to look at it. Nobody's going to say, hurry up, run, 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 Braxton, get the brass snake. <laughs> We're all like, I am not moving. You all get the car. We're headed for the hospital, right? We're like, take me to the doctor. These guys, there was no doctor. And you know how silly it must have sounded to the average Hebrew? I have been bitten by a poison snake. I don't know if they're twitching, foaming at the mouth, pain's coming up, legs swollen, whatever. And then they're just like, here, there's this snake right here. Would you just look at that and your sick will go away? Now, maybe if somebody put it on Facebook, one of the Facebook theologians, everybody would believe it. But seriously, who's going to believe that? Because all you're doing is putting your faith in looking at that. You know, your faith wasn't even in that serpent. Your faith was in looking at it. But it said that everyone that looked at that serpent, what happened? They lived. They lived. It was a real story at a real time in Israel's history. It really happened. Then we come to the application painted clearly by John and Jesus. I should say Jesus, and John records it, that that is a picture of our salvation is to look unto the Son and trust him and believe him, and whosoever believeth in him shall not what? Perish. Those people looked, and they did not die from the snake bite. It didn't keep them from getting snake bite. It kept them from not dying because they were already bitten by the snake bite. And so just thinking about what timeless truth is taught in that Old Testament story, salvation by faith, by faith, their belief, they looked. And you're like, hey, I see that there. You don't do that first, you see this last. We're trying to pull out the things. What do we have in the text? Forget the big word homiletical. What did it mean to the Hebrews? If I look at that snake, I, I will live. Timeless truth, salvation is by faith. And then the homiletical statement, how does it apply to us today? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because it isn't that you have to go kiss a cross. It isn't that you have to go touch a cross or a crucifix. It isn't that you need to wear a crucifix. It's that you, in your, in your heart and in your mind, you are looking to Jesus alone for your salvation, that you believe in him. That's you applying it to today. The truth is, if you look, you live. Here is, have you done that? Now, this is the structure after you have read everything, after you've looked for everything. Now, you know what's going to happen? I'll just be honest. If you've done this well on some text, you're gonna, it's going to be like you just get a pair of scissors and you like cut out a whole lot of stuff that you just did because the meat of it is right here. 
and you're thinking, man, I did all that work. But you know what? All that stuff is in your mind when this is coming out. We have the, a newly married couple here, Braxton and Brianna. And they're at the beginning of their journey. And mom and I have been married 45 years. I, there are words, one word I can say to my wife, and it says volumes. Sometimes bad, but usually good. They don't have that yet because they don't have those years and years and years of experiences and things that happen. But they don't love each other any less than I love mom. But the years and years of extra work you put into studying the scriptures, it's all going to be in you. It's going to be there. And it's going to come out in other things that you're doing. Some of the study you do for sermons, you're going to wind up using in counseling. Some of the things that you learn as you study the scriptures are going to be things that you actually learn to apply to your children in the home. All of your study is not wasted. This, this is investing your mind time, your heart time, in the scripture, preparing to feed your people. But God is going to bless and multiply that like Jesus fed the 5,000. He's going to feed your own soul and prepare you in ways that you have no idea. And each week that you faithfully do this, it's just going to be more and more and more. And then comes that week that every pastor in here knows comes, that you've got house cry after house cry that you have to go to, middle of the night call, things happening, a family falling apart, you're standing in the gap here and there, and it's, and it's, it's already 2 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, and you finally come home, and you're like, God, I'm tired and I have not had time this week, and you know I have been busy ever since I walked out of the pulpit last, last time I preached, Sunday, to now, God, you've got to give me something. You know what? If there's nothing already in here, he's not going to give it to you. He will give you grace, but all that study that you keep doing is here. And by his Spirit, he's going to go back in here, and some of the things that you've buried in your soul as you went through, some of those places where you cut it out and said, man, I studied all that stuff, but I see this is all that I need to preach right now. God may just pull some of that stuff back. You'll never even know where it came from. You're like, God, I need to know what text. I feel confident this week I was reading this, these verses, or last week I was reading and I just wrote down what these verses meant to me. God, those verses mean a lot to me. I don't know. Will they mean a lot to my people? I want to do my best with just these verses here. Why? Because the, the difficult times always come. And you're always preparing your heart. Always preparing your heart. And so this week's message that you're preparing, you may be doing study that God's going to use for three weeks from now or three years from now. But all of it will pay off. All of it will be profitable. Let me just skip that. I want to get to this right here. And where am I doing? Oh, I'm perfect. is what I'm going to do is lengthen this session just a little bit, and then we're going to take a good break, and then we're going to come back for our, a panel session. But, but I won't explain that for right now. This right here, uh, those of you pastors that got the little brown book on uh, expository preaching, this, this is the author that David Helm wrote. I'm going to put up on the screen next an explanation for this. So you'll see this, and then you'll see it with an explanation on it. The thing I want you to take note of before I get started is this right here. What does it say in the middle? Don't shortcut. This is what we tend to do in our sermon, uh, sermon preparation. We look at the text, we find an application. The problem is if we don't take this road to get there, we may find an application that has nothing to do with the text, or it would be like, um, oh, I don't know, we have Maseratis somewhere in the city. I just, I don't know where they are. Because everybody, everybody knows about the Maseratis. You know they're like a really fast car, right? So it's like owning a Maserati and living on this road. You're like, what does that mean? A Maserati is about that far off the ground. The first pothole it hits, it will go and stop. It's a really fast car. It's not, better for, you have a Land Cruiser or a Patrol out here than a Maserati. But when you go from here to here, it's like you're trying to drive a Maserati on a pothole road. You've got a really good and a really fast car, but what you're doing is it is not what it's intended for, and you're going to only get this much out of it. Whereas you go this way, 
you're going to see so much more, and it's going to be more helpful. So as I walk through this, let me just give you that this is. This is you opening your Bible, and you're reading the text, and reading the text, and reading the text. What am I seeing? Then, the interpretation of the text. Okay, I've read it, I've read it, I've read it. I think this means this to those people as it was written at that time. And this time you might even call in if you have other resources. Uh, let's see, I have this book that I picked up here on Jonah. You're reading Jonah. Like, all right, what did James Knox say about Jonah? And so you're like, don't go to James Knox first. Go to the Holy Spirit. Read the text, read the text. Can I tell you what will help you so much in your, and make you realize that the same Holy Spirit's working in you? If you study first and you see your own observations and make your own interpretations and then you open the book by the famous preacher and you see he saw it, you know something? The same Holy Spirit that showed him showed you. And when you look at it, he said it, don't say, oh, it must be simple because I found it. No, you saw it because the Holy Spirit showed you. And that's to let you know the Holy Spirit is working in you. You don't need famous preachers. But they are help. But don't go to the help first. Observe it. Look at it. What does it say? How am I seeing this? How do, how did it, what did it mean to those people? And hmm, how, do, how do I see maybe that could mean to us? Then I come over here to the Revelation. This, not the book of Revelation, but as I look at the text, what will this mean for us in, in, the, in today? Not the application, but what could this mean for us? Like I was talking about how, the, the serpent in the wilderness. How could that apply to us? That was, you know, 1,500 plus 2,000, 3,500 years ago. How would that apply? How would that fit for us? And then I come down to the application. How does it apply to this church at this location right here? Don't shortcut. Go through these. Now, here's, here's what these would look like. The observation. What does the text say? That's reading it. I, everything that was in here is now in the yellow boxes. Observation. What does the text say? Read it and read it and read it and read it. Do not put point one, two, three, four on it. Just read it and read it and read it and see. You might be uh, smart enough in your mind that you can hold all this stuff in your mind. If it's me, I'm just, I'm just, I save rubbish paper. I'm so thankful my wife doesn't throw away my rubbish paper. Every piece of paper I have, I always save it. I stick it in there. I have this whole stack of rubbish paper because it's blank on one side. And I write notes on it. When I finish, Braxton's probably seen it. There's a trash bin under my desk. It's full of rubbish paper that's written on both sides because I just like, don't waste it. Because I'm just going to scratch notes down. I, I saw that. I see that. I see that. And in all the things I see, what did, this is what it says. But from my observation, then I want to go to the interpretation. What did it mean when it was written? What did it mean? How did it apply to those people? And for those people, well, again, to the serpent, it meant life if they would just do what they were told. What it, I don't know, I, I gotta say this. The, do you think that some people wanted to touch that serpent? I do. It's human nature. Do you think the Catholic Church was invented yesterday? The idea of touching idols and having idols is as old as humanity. It is very, it is, it is why, why did our ancestors in Papua New Guinea carve totems and say these are spirits or these are ancestors and, and a place that's never seen here and you've never seen there in South and Central America, Indian tribes there carve totems with spirits and with ancestors, go across the Atlantic Ocean, go land in Egypt. The Egyptians carved in stone totems of their ancestors and of the spirits. Because, brothers and sisters, human nature is the same everywhere in the world. The evil spirits that influence things here influence everywhere in the world. We are not as isolated as we think. Yeah, well, we have our context and we have that. Yes, we do. But we have the same God over all and we have the same devil against all. And so when you're taking a look at what did it mean when it was written, those people, I think there were people just like today would like to touch the snake. You know what? Look him that's all. Me like, hold him. And we got strong, me like, hold him. Look him that's all. Hold him. Suppose me hold him strong more by calm. Human nature. For those of you that know the story, the story of that serpent continues all the way up to Hezekiah. It's Hezekiah, right? And Hezekiah, 
You know what he did with that serpent? Who knows what Hezekiah did with that serpent? Hezekiah. Hezekiah, by the way, is, um, let's see, Moses, 1500 B.C., Hezekiah, 700 B.C. The serpent is 700 years old. Oh, it's worth a lot of money. It's been around a long time. Very important in Israeli history. You know what Hezekiah did to it? He smashed it. He broke it. Because the Hebrews, 700 years later, were worshiping it. And he, and he gave it a name. And we have the name and the interpretation of the word in our English Bible. He called it Nehushtan. And Nehushtan, he says, which means a piece of brass. Now, can you imagine holding something? This is the, the crown jewels. Well, if we could get the crown jewels, right? Charles is going to put that on. If you get the crown jewels, and I have the authority, I don't, but if I had the authority to go snatch it away and say, you British people, you guys just worship the monarchy. You plus I, underneath the king, I'm upping him too much. This thing is just a broken piece of gold and jewels. And I smash it on the ground and stomp on it. Well, first of all, then I'd be in the calaboose the rest of my life. But if I did that, you're like, oh, you can't do that. Those are the crown jewels. That's England's crown. That's what Hezekiah, the king, the great good king, Hezekiah said, break that serpent because you people are worshiping something that was never intended to be worshiped. It had a purpose then. Human nature is what it is. And understand that people are people. So people probably wanted to hold it instead of look at it. But God didn't say hold it. He said look at it. And it, when you think that through in your mind, what did it mean then? You can preach that. God didn't say touch it. God said look at it. Which when you get to your application, you can tell your people, God's just telling you to have faith and believe in Jesus Christ. You don't, need, you don't need this church. You don't need baptism. You don't need communion. Things you can hold. You need the eye of faith. You, you get where I went with that. The idea is, this, you, what you're seeing here is going to come out down there. Now we come back to this. So from what did it mean then, and how did they view it, and what did they do, and what maybe they had done? You come over here. What doctrinal truth is there? Is there salvation there? Do you see pictures of Christ there do you see pictures of the return of jesus do you see pictures of sin you take the story of achan in the old testament he coveted he lusted right he took the the things from uh, the conquest of jericho that he wasn't supposed to take and god commanded that he be put to death why because he lusted and he coveted and he saw it and he took it similar to what eve did you have the same idea theological truth of covetousness is sin from there to the application how is that helpful for us today if we take the story of Achan how does that help us that means if anybody steals anything we should get them and their family put them in a hole and stone them to death and then bury them that's what the bible says huh. amen say, say amen after it it means it's more it means powerful chief somebody on facebook powerful chief Do you see what I'm saying? We, we, you were like, well, nobody would say take them out and stone them. No, but we do say a lot of things that we really don't need to say out of their context. So observe it. What does it say? Interpret it. What did it mean when it was written? How did, picture it in that context. You're like, I don't know if I can do that. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman. Think it through. Think it through. You say, I don't know. Do your best to look it up. When you can't find it, move on. But the, the harder you work at it, the harder you work at it, the more, what is it, the more pay you're going to have. Find any theological or doctrinal truth with it, write that down, and then say, all of this, how does that help us today? And you don't have to preach all of it. You don't have to go five hours into it and preach all of it. You're just like, how is this whole thing helpful today? And some of it you leave off. And who knows, you might use that later. Is everybody up with it catch up with what I'm saying I think I'm going to call it right right about there does anyone have any questions tomorrow you're going to see very practical applications of this very practical applications does anyone have a question and I'll let you know if it's too technical for today and it's something that we'll save for tomorrow If this will help, I think I have it. 
if suppose you sabe clear lo talk pigeon and you like kitchen snap him em talk pigeon same thing but i just here you talk the same bible text you talk one m now you read him again again a study now you make him all same now you come on top one and mean he got time all he didn't write him now you scale him just the past time thing him not scale him good nah one him doctrine he stopped long just text so one him kind something he show him picture about jesus or something blow eternal life or one him now practical meaning and one him practical meaning and one him how about you me applying this to something long you mean out today no can i uh, made that up in pigeon shortcut no can shortcut you don't jump from the bible text says what how does that apply today think think it through this is the thinking it through suppose you like kissing little talk pigeon you can snap him all same no questions yes preacher david make it really loud so we can all hear it yes i'll put it back in english Start, start again. Pastor's got a, a microphone for you, and you can say it. Go ahead. That application part there. Yes. Yeah, after you observe your message, and then you interpret and do the revelation, and sometimes right. you cannot apply, or you also apply it. I, I don't think you'll get any further than here. Do you understand his question? He goes, what if you get this far, and you find out, oh, this really doesn't help our church? I don't think you'll get any further than here before you decide that. Would you agree, Pastor Matt? You won't get any further than step one. You get here and there's nothing. I think you'll see this begin from here. I think that if, here's a philosophical approach to it. If I don't have an application, do I still preach it? And the answer has to be yes, because I'm commanded to preach the whole counsel of God. So the application may come across as this is simply learning for you to know more about the Lord. It's not you need to get on your knees and repent for. But it, the application may come across as learning, knowing more, knowing him more. Um, but I'm afraid that if we just say, okay, there's not a application that comes out of this, then I give it up. The, you never give up the passage. So, I would, my, so what I was gonna say on top of that was what he just said. If you come to here and there's nothing there, what you've had is you, it's all truth. First, it's all scripture, and all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's a teaching text rather than a preaching text. In other words, it's something we need to learn don't try to force it to say something it doesn't say. But it's a good point. Yeah, if you get here, don't force it. Don't shoehorn it and bend it. Now, you may read him this Toblogotti coming up all same and all right now. So, all right, you need to believe in. I, by the way, can I say this? When you preach, when you're trying to bring the gospel into the message, do not force the gospel into the message. It's, you, you've come this far, you've done all this, and you're teaching it. Well, the serpent on the, on, uh, the brass serpent is going to lend itself to a natural thing. I believe you should have the gospel in every one of your messages. But just don't make it an add-on like every, at the end of every message I have to say these one or two things. No. Somewhere in the middle of your message, you need to bring out the gospel. And I'm talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection for our sins to redeem us bring that out. If you put it on the end, it's almost like the, oh yeah, and. And it's, and it's not the same thing. But no, good point. Preacher, very good point. Someone else. I know there's more questions. We're just afraid to ask. I saw a finger point. Oh, yes, Brother Jerry. Thank you. I was thinking that the Bible was written in, from Gen to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. I was thinking the Bible was written in that order of times so or chronological order. But my question is, well, how will you help me as a student of the Word or preacher to do my own personal research to know how the Bible is? The chronological the order. order. Yeah. Very good. If you have a smartphone, 
you literally can Google it. You can go and do a Google search. What is the chronological order of the books of the Bible? Chronological order. And it'll give you the list. How did they, how did they go? And you, you just write that down and keep it in your Bible to help you to understand it or where you have the table of contents and it's got Genesis through Revelation. To the side you can put, this was the order. If you have access to something like Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, which our BBI Palm students have, Wilmington's Guide has that in there. It has the list, the chronological list. It's not difficult um, because all you're just going to do is reorder the books. And in the, it, it isn't as critical in the New Testament as it is the Old Testament. Everything in the New Testament is written within 70 years, a lifetime. But the Old Testament is written over a period of, uh, if you go all the way to, um, to uh, Job, 1,600 years versus 70 years. But yeah, you can Google that, Brother Jerry. That, that is well worth the research to do it. And if you have a question, share it with another brother and say, it says this order, is that right? But rather than me tell anyone, I would like, just do that. You'll, you'll feel better. You find that research. And you understand, like Malachi, yeah, he is at the end, but wow, he's contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. And Haggai and Zechariah, those guys are together. And Daniel and Ezekiel are just before them. Most people don't think about it. Daniel and Ezekiel are contemporaries. Daniel is living in the, the palace of the ruling kingdom of the world. So if you did that at Jesus' time, it would like, he, Daniel would be Caesar's assistant if you brought it to the New Testament. Daniel would be Caesar's assistant, not Pilate's assistant, Caesar, head of the known world. So Daniel is working with Nebuchadnezzar, leader of the empire that rules the whole world, and Ezekiel lives with the common people in a bush house next to a river. And they're contemporary at the same time, both prophets of God, both with different messages because of their audience. Yes, Brother Mwahi. Thank you. Uh, when you're talking about the chronological uh, order of the Bible, yes. uh, is there any distinction between the chronological order of the Bible and uh, the dispensation, the doctrine of dispensation? Um, yes, because if you're looking at, at the scripture dispensationally, and that's a topic for another time, but you've got the period of innocence, conscience, human government, and all that stuff is just crammed into the first few chapters of the Bible. Um, then you pick up from there when you get to, um, to the law and then the period of the church. A lot of that stuff falls under the law, and so when you're moving it around, you're still under the same. If you're after Moses, you're under the law all the way to the cross. The law is Exodus 20, when it's given on Mount Sinai, all the way to the cross, and that is not Malachi. That's the end of Matthew, the end of Mark, the end of Luke, the end of John. When we're talking about the chronology of the Bible and the dispensation, the distinction I can see is that uh, in dispensation, the books encroached into an, uh, other, other, the other the order of the books, like they encroached into each other. Yes. And, but when we talk about chronological order of the Bible, it's just like this book is this, this book is this and that. Yes, yes. Question? Yes. Just going to clarify. Uh, I think what I'm hearing Brother Wiley say is, Job, did it happen separate, completely separate from Genesis? And I think the answer to that is you can't predate Genesis. So it has to, it does encroach and overlap. Within it. Yes. Right. It falls within it. Um, so we wouldn't say... Job would be the first book of the Bible chronologically. Um, however, it falls within the chronological. I think, I think that's what he was asking. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you.
anyone else. I am not the Bible answer man. I'm far from it. But if there's anything that I've taught here or I opened, a, opened up something that you're like, ah, oh, you said this, and I, I promise I'm not a heretic. BBI Palm students, they have to, they have to hear me all the time. On and on and on and on and on. And John Yates. Who teaches faster than I do and more. Yeah. Okay, if there aren't any more questions, we will take a break. It is 10 minutes to um, Let's come back in um, at uh, you know, five minutes after two. And that'll give us some time to move things around up here and set up for the panel. I've asked several pastors to sit in the, in the front here, in front of you. We, those of you that were here at the conference um, last September, um, we use this as a time where I've got some questions and I ask the pastors and anyone can answer it or they cannot answer it. It doesn't mean anything if they do or if they don't. Um, um, some questions about ministry-related things. And today's topic, I want to talk to talk about longevity in ministry, being in ministry a long time, some of the things uh, uh, that regard that. And you, what happens is these are like conversation starters, and you've got several men with experience, long-term or specific experience, and sometimes you just find there's wisdom in that, and I believe that'll be helpful for all of us, myself included. So you guys go ahead and take a break. We'll come back in at 5 after uh, 2. And begin the, this will be the last session of the day. When that's finished, then we can wrap it up.